welcome to the show. This is the Magician and the Fool podcast, and we are on episode number 30 today. My name is Dominic, and my co-host's name is Janice. You will hear from him in a little bit. In this episode, we talk to Voodoo Ungan Rocky Geis, also known as Fork Non Puen. Ungan is an initiated voodoo priest, and Rocky has about 20 years' experience studying and practicing magic, and he also has 10 generations of knowledge and wisdom to rely on in his voodoo society. He has studied under many different initiates, including uh, in the Golden Dawn, as well as with root workers, but found his true calling in voodoo when he met his current teacher. In our talk today, we cover lots of important, as well as hot-button issues, of modern occultism. Rocky is upfront, outspoken, and honest in his opinions. We had a very candid conversation, which covered, among other things, lineage, mentors, spirit communication, and mental health. Uh, We all had a lot of fun. And it's funny, Rocky is from South Florida, and actually ran in many of the same circles as Janice and I. And we even have many of the same friends in common. But to our knowledge, we never met, although it's very possible we crossed paths at some point. Rocky offers a variety of professional services, which you can find on his website, voodoo.sorcerer.com. Also on that website, you can find his very informative blog, which he has been keeping up pretty regularly. You can also check out his Facebook group, Ancestors, Saints, Tarot, and Conjure. Before we get into the episode, we want to say thank you, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Your support helps offset some of the costs of the show, so thank you again. We appreciate it, and if you would like to help keep the show running, we would be more than happy to have you do that. You can just go to Patreon and do what you can to help us out. Or not, that's fine too. We also want to say thank you to anyone who has given us a review or a rating on iTunes. That tends to help us become a little bit more visible and gives our guests a little bit more exposure. So if you have the time and the desire, please do that for us. That would be great. Or not. Uh, What else? Janice, his mic. Something weird was going on in this episode. He sounds a little off. Not sure what's going on, but uh, we'll figure it out eventually. So if he sounds a little weird, we don't know. (laughs) But uh, it is what it is. As always, we dedicate this to Hermes as well as Asclepius. And may the merits that we accumulate doing this work be extended to all beings so that they together with us may equally realize awakening. are super excited to have Ungan Rocky Geis on the show today to talk about spirituality, voodoo, uh, traditional practice, all sorts of things. Uh, welcome to the show, Rocky. Thanks for having me, Dom. 
Yeah, our pleasure. And we've got a hilariously sounding Janice <laughs> with us today. Let me step forth from the shadows and uh, <laughs> speak to you with the big voice. <laughs> Folks, we don't know what's wrong. No, with but you. welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Janice. Yeah. <laughs> Glad to have you here. I'm very excited. Very excited. Yeah. How about we just start with kind of your, your backstory, how you got into uh, spiritual practice, a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Sure. Uh, I was raised Roman Catholic, grew up in an Italian Catholic household. Uh, I went to private Catholic school for 12 years of my life. Uh, theology doctrine was a really big thing. I was an altar boy. Uh, my childhood was very difficult. I had night terrors. Uh, things would appear to me in the middle of the night, and this was very hard to describe to my family. And so it was recommended to me after exorcisms of the house and that sort of stuff that I pray to St. Michael the Archangel. So at a young age, I became a very fervent practitioner of prayer. And I had experiences with divinities at a very young age. Um, Fast forward through the high school angst, uh, experimenting with different types of occultism, mainly around the satanic Bible, Anton LaVey stuff, you know, the things edgy teenagers get into, along with the Necronomicon. And I would try the rituals because what's the point of just things sounding spooky without actually doing magic? Uh, And around this time, I also bought a tarot deck, thinking it was part of a game system. The local Barnes & Noble had the D&D, you know, all your tabletop stuff all in one section. There was this this box of cards, and it said, the Aleister Crowley Thoth deck. So I didn't know any better. I picked it up, took it home, and tried to figure out the rules. And eventually I realized that this wasn't quite a game in the traditional sense. And that's how I started getting into tarot and divination. So from about the age of 14, 15, maybe even younger, it might've even been 13. Uh, I began exploring these different aspects of the occult, just kind of bumbling through trying to be dark and edgy at the same time. Typical, you know, goth kid. Yeah. Right. You know, typical edgy kid is how I started out. Um, I lost interest in it for a few years until my early 20s when I had fallen off a a motorized vehicle and busted my shoulder. It was a really traumatic experience for me. And through a mutual friend whom both of you know, uh, his name is Jason, he recommended to me that I do yoga to heal. And I found myself with him in a yoga teacher training course. And it all just became this endless road of one experience after another. If I closed my eyes to meditate, I saw spirits. I ended up going to a hermitage up in the mountains of Tennessee. I was only up there for a few weeks because the spirits there suddenly appeared to me and told me to go home because it wasn't for me. And this became this cycle of these spiritual things happening to me and not really having an outlet with how to deal with it properly. I didn't know there at that time, there were, there was very little material that was of any good to really 
helped me get some footing as to what was taking place in my life. Um, eventually, on a, uh, on a service call while I was working for AT&T, I ended up at the house of a Haitian man whose name was Gene Kent. And he was, he was very rough with me from the moment I arrived and uh, gave me a pretty hard time. After I fixed his problem, I was looking around because there was this obvious stuff that looked like voodoo, like everything you see in the movies, these houses, these little houses in his backyard, big statues. It was really, really different looking. And I asked, I said, is all this stuff voodoo? And it was like watching someone go through a transformation. If you think about tra- if you think about possession in the Hollywood sense, you expect like the eyes rolling back in the head, people shaking, frothing at the mouth, but that's really not what it's like. Sometimes it's so subtle you can't figure out what just happened. But this man transforms in front of me, and light fills up the room, and he goes, "Aha! You, you are the one that the spirits told me was coming today. You are a magician, aren't you?" And I was just stunned, floored, terrified. I'd never experienced anything like that. I had some experience with the OTO at the time. And to be perfectly honest, I was not impressed. If I got anything out of it, I learned how to do the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram. That's all I have to say from the OTO. But this man had some sort of power that he was just emanating. And it was terrifying. It went like all the way down to my bones. It was so terrifying, in fact, that after he gave me a reading... I felt like I had to just get as far away from voodoo as I possibly could. In fact, my cousin contacted me a few weeks after that experience and said that he was going to move to Arizona. And with that momentum of fear, I said, you know what? Let's do it. I'm packing my stuff. Let's get a truck. Let's get the hell out of Florida. So we move away from Florida and uh, go out to Arizona. I follow, I help my cousin get out there, then move back to, come back to Florida to finish up a contract I was working on. And I go to move out there. Everything fell apart in front of my eyes. All this money I'd put into it. My name wasn't on the lease. I had, I, I had stuff in a storage locker that I didn't know where it was. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. I called this voodoo priest, Gene Kent. And he tells me, what are you doing out in Arizona? Why would you move out there? What were you thinking? And I didn't have the guts to say to this man, uh, well, actually, ever since you gave me a reading, I've been absolutely terrified because I'm having an existential crisis right now. Thank you very much. So he says, well, I don't know what to tell you to do. He gave me some advice, gave me some magic to do. And I never did it. I just decided to pack my bags. And I ended up moving to Jacksonville, Florida. And I stayed in Jacksonville for a while. And I more or less worked on my hermetic practices. Um, I did, went through a lot of spiritual growth at that time. I started conjuring spirits, did an evocation, had a, had a, a spirit from that book called Goetia appear during a conjuration. It was a lot of validating experiences took place during that time. And I felt like, you know what? I think I got a grip on this magic thing. I was given the opportunity to move to North Carolina. So I moved to North Carolina under another contract. 
my first day there, as I, after I unpacked my stuff, I feel strangely tired. I felt like I had to take a nap and I laid down. Next thing I know, I find myself walking into this pavilion that actually looked something like the places that Jean had. And there were all these Haitian people around me. And I didn't know what to think. There's all this food, they're partying, they're dancing. And one, one of the Haitian people comes up to me in this dream. And he's wearing a top hat and a tuxedo. And he's drinking and smoking. And he tells me, you did it again. We told you not to move. And you moved. What were you thinking? Why did you do that? I woke up, existential dread. It wouldn't be for another year that I would describe these things to dream. To I descri- I described this dream to Gene, and he would tell me, "Yeah, that was the Baron that spoke to you, and that was Mrs. Bridget who was next to him, and that was so and so, and that was so and so, and all these things that validated these spirits." I was still struggling with the concept of spirits even being real. So I I stayed in Arizona to finish out my contract. And during that time, even more experiences took place. I had at one point an Orisha appear to me in a dream. Full-fledged told me his name and I had no idea who the Orishas were. I ended up getting in contact with a Babalao because that's what I was told to find. Eventually, life brought me back to Florida. My grandparents, who were my godparents also, and my guardians, were both diagnosed with cancer, one after another. So I came back to Florida, and after they both passed, I dedicated myself to learn voodoo from Jean. And a year after I returned, I was initiated. And I like to tell this story to people because it was a very painful experience to be too shy and too scared to ask for help. And that's what I went through. When I went through this my pride dictated how much I was going to suffer. So that's why I really like to tell my background and I really like to get into it and let people know that if you're having strange experiences, there is no virtue in suffering. There is virtue in helping yourself and seeking people that can help you. So that's who I am. And that's, these are all these experiences that shape me into the magician that I am today. I love the origin story. Oh yeah. Awesome, man. That's, that's how I got my superpowers. <laughs> yeah. That was a really, really moving story actually. And I'm not only, I mean, I'm blown away first of all, that we know so many of the same people having lived in Florida myself. It's just bizarre, but a uh, very cool story. Um, so how, how did your, how did your training progress? I mean, how, how did that go? How deep did you go? How quickly? When you first start seeing a priest, even if they consider you for initiation or a divination comes out that you are to be initiated, they're under no obligation to initiate you or teach you anything. Even if the spirits say this person's supposed to be a magician, 
This person is supposed to initiate people. This person is going to be a healer. You're just an outsider. And I spent quite a lot of time as an outsider going to Gene, trying to get my life straightened out because my life was absolute chaos by that point. Once I was initiated, the roles changed a bit. And I was over at Gene's house almost every weekend, sitting there, listening to him, working with clients. It was strange because you get a lot of information and very little context on how to apply it. And it wasn't until after seeing all these clients, watching Gene take care of these very different cases, everything from someone that wants love to people that have this very serious court case coming up. And understanding the role of what an ungan is, I mean, usually when people hear the idea of a priest, they're thinking of this, you know, I, I practically levitate off the floor, I'm holier than thou art. The reality is, is I am here to facilitate for the spirits so that they can express themselves to the work they do for the clients. Um, so yeah, it was like getting thrown into the deep end and having to learn how to swim. And there was, there was, there were several points where a lot of doubt was cast into myself because when you're going through this training, the, I don't want to say flaws, but the weaknesses in your personality, the imperfections, the impurities, they get put right into your face to the point where if you do something that is out of line with what should be your true self, it immediately comes back and hits you. There is, it's almost like there's this karmic, I shouldn't have done that. And now I have to deal with the consequences. And some of those consequences are, can be pretty steep. So the training was a lot of observation. And I probably should have been asking more questions, which I didn't learn to do until many years down the road. Would you mind uh, talking a little bit about uh, the tradition of voodoo itself? And uh, to our, for those in the audience that might not be familiar, just a little bit of history. Sure. sure. Um, voodoo in Africa before the diaspora was largely pr practiced along the West African coast in the area now known as Benin. Um, voodoo was a part of the greater system of the Fawn, which included aspects from the Yoruba traditions, such as Ifa, which they call Fa. Um, voodoo uh, incorporated a lot of different aspects, not just with the Orishas, but also with the Luas, uh, it's more or less has always been a system of synergizing different elements in a very neat way. And, and when I say neat, I'm not saying, no, that's neat. I'm saying in a very concise way. During the, when the diaspora happened and the slaves began to come in, the, uh, the French took the slaves to what is now Haiti. And thinking that they could have better control, they took members of different tribes and put them all together, thinking that they'll have a more difficult time to communicate because they are, some of these tribes are natural enemies. And instead, they, these tribes got together, radicalized under one flag through ceremony, no less, and was the first independent black state African state in the new world. 
And this was all through voodoo. Now, what the Haitians practice is a little bit different, or actually very different than what's practiced in West Africa to this day, because many of the spirits of Haitian voodoo were born during the revolution. They were born for the express purpose of setting the Haitians free. So there are new spirits in the new world. Some of those spirits even come from the Taino people who were living there before the colonists got there. So there's a plethora of all these different spirits. And there's even an incorporation of Masonic traditions as well that the French Masons brought with them. So we sometimes you see things like grimoire magic in some voodoo societies because that magic was brought by the French Masons. It's an extremely complex and cultish religion. And by cultish, I mean that each town has its own variety of voodoo. There are agreed upon luas, but each, each town and sometimes each family does things a little bit different. So it is a very organic system and can be applied in very different ways. Here in America, the new Ungans, the new generations here are doing something even different than in Haiti. It is adaptable. It needs to be in order to survive because it is a religion of survival. There's no real doctrine. There are agreed upon principles. There are agreed upon myths. But the reality is that it's all very unique to itself. Thanks. That's an excellent answer. I really appreciate you going into that detail. Um, There's a lot to be unpacked even from the statement you already made, but I really feel like that gives a nice perspective on it. I have another question that's kind of related to that. Um, So a lot of people might see voodoo and they see this Catholic influence on voodoo. Like they see the saints, they see, if you read, even the ceremonies have almost like a Catholic flavor to them sometimes. And I was wondering on what your insights are about the synthesis. I honestly believe that the synthesis happened before the diaspora because we look at North Africa, we see Ethiopia, we know that Christianity had already begun to enter into the Congo and was becoming an accepted religion in the Congo before the diaspora even happened. Um, So that element of voodoo is more than just a syncretization that was used by the slaves to hide their, their luas. It was something that had already begun to take place in people's minds, that they could see they could see connections between the, these saints and angels, as well as the spirits that they serve. There, to me, when I look at a saint that I also know is the image of a lua, there is no real distinction between the two. When I look at the, uh, the image of the Black Madonna, I see not only the Black Madonna, but I also see Urzuli Dantor. So the way it may be, is that this, the Luas work through the saints in order to be something more understandable as the Luas themselves are more like forces of nature. Yeah, I was going to ask you, would you, would you equate Luas with uh, gods? No. 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 They are living spirits. I think gods, and the reason why I say no, because the concept of a god is something that is far away, unreachable sometimes unknowable. 
Uh, we only deal with an aspect of a god, whereas luas, lua just simply means spirit. Luas are, are more like people. They're understandable. They're sympathetic. They cry with you. They laugh with you. They love you. You aren't just some worshiper to them when you are a priest or devoted to them, a voodooizant. You are like a child to them. And they re- we hear so much about how they punish people, but we don't hear enough of is how much they love their devotees, how much they love their priests, and how much they love humanity in general. Meanwhile, when we look at gods in the classical sense, sometimes they have an absolute disdain for humans. We're like these silly things that they manipulate and have fun with. And that's why I like the idea that they are living spirits. They are something comprehensible and they care more importantly. I think that's really well put. And I love your point about how the gods are always trying to flex on us, man. We got to flex back at them, man. But <laughs> but, um, well apparently some witches are, are cursing the moon oh right now my, the sun and the moon that's want, apparently uh, yeah what it what is uh, that nonsense i don't even know <laughs> i don't even know I, I i i've just heard it through the grapevine of, of facebook i can hear yeah. my italian grandmother sighing right now <laughs> hey i have a question for you that kind of relates to what you were just talking about though you sure. i kind of envy you because you uh, moved right by Casadega, which is the famed spiritualist camp. Um, it's got to be so cool to live by there. But what's interesting to me is that you're in Ungan, you practice voodoo, and there is this also this interesting historical connection between voodoo and spiritualism. And like you're living now right near a spiritualist camp, so even you're like embodying that connection. It's it's kind of crazy if you think about it. It's kind of like, you know, coming full circle. Um, Spiritualism, you know, brought that gained popularity in the Caribbean, especially Alan Kardec's uh, spiritualist ideas. Uh, They really took root because some information was lost in the diaspora as people were broken up, the traditions were broken up. Possession, how to induce possession, how to get the spirits to mount so that you can communicate with your spirits some of that information was lost and that's where spiritualism filled the gap through seances, prayer, um, devotion to the spirits. They get excited during gatherings uh, of different mediums, or as we call them in voodoo horses, and they mount their people. They possess them. They purify them. They clean them. They do cleansings. They offer advice and they're ready to work. Uh, so yeah, it's, it is very interesting, especially to learn the history of this particular area in Casadega and about Colby and what he brought from Lilydale to, um, to this particular area. And there is something, there is this underlying current in some spots when you get closer to Casadega, where you actually can feel this, this vibe in the air, especially in the, in the park right next to Casadega called Colby Park. Occasionally you'll go there and you'll feel the vibe of these spirits that are just hanging out. Um, Spiritualism is something anybody can do. Anybody can explore it. It is, there are traditions, there are houses and societies uh, in spiritualism, but anybody can approach it. And it's approached through prayer, through 
serving the ancestors, venerating the ancestors, allowing the spirits around you to manifest in your life and acknowledge them and giving light to them and elevating them. And as you elevate them, you elevate yourself. Spiritualism is, is a very powerful practice that your modern magician would be very wise to include. So having said that, um, I assume not anyone can, can work with the law or can they, do you have to be initiated to, to work with the, the more specific Haitian uh, streams to there's, there's a word right there. And we say work, the, the meaning of work or travail means to command the spirit to do something. And only the priest or, or priestess, the Ungan or the Mambo have the right and the authority to actually command the spirit to do something. And by command, it's not in the sense of how Western magic would make it seem where we, where we are, where you yell at them or you threaten them to do things. Instead, you're negotiating. A, a lot of what we do is negotiations like, hey, this person needs this. And the spirit will come back and say, okay, well, I'll do it for this. And you go, well, that, that, you know, that seems a little steep. How about we do it for this? Okay. And we come to an agreement and the spirit does the work. Um, a person may serve the loi as a lay person. Um, they may petition the loi. They may ask for a boon. And the loi's may choose to do it or not, but they are under no obligation. But I, I say this also with a degree of caution. Because we each have a different spirituality. We have like a matrix of spirits around it. And I, I, I called it the spiritual court. And a few other people call it that now. We have, this, we have this spiritual court. We have these spirits that we were born with. This includes ancestors, guides and guardians, saints, and maybe even luas or orishas, depending on your, your background. Those are the spirits that are going to be the most helpful to you. Granted, you can light a candle for the baron because mm. you like the baron. However, that doesn't mean the baron is obligated to answer you. And the baron is, and to push too hard could, could offend the Lua. And then you have a problem with a Lua that is angry with you. Do you feel that's an issue? Are people, are people trying to work with the Lua's when they don't have the authority to? Yes. And part of the problem is through just bad information that's out there. Um, first of all, voodoo is an initiatory religion. If you were born in it, if you were Haitian, doesn't matter. It is initiatory. The rites are initiatory, whether it's getting your head washed, being baptized, uh, going through Konzo, all initiation. Konzo is just initiation. It's closed. It is not open. Some houses are more open and accepting to, to outsiders. But the reality is, is it's a small door and it's closed. And if you want to get into it, you need to go find a door to knock on. Knock hard. And you might need to be prepared to wait. There is real power when it's done properly. And when the spirit, when the laws manifest, it is a life-changing experience for most people. And there's another thing that needs to be said about that as well. If you have no ties to the Luas, it is not in your ancestry. It is very unlikely that a Lua is going to answer you. 
The Luas are Haitian spirits. And the only way for an outsider to gain access to that is through a society. A society must let you in so that you can have access to the Luas. Otherwise, you're just lighting candles in vain, or you're just inviting parasites into your sphere of sensation. There are many spirits, name, an infinite number of nameless spirits that will happily appear and say, yeah, I am the Baron. Sure, you can call me that. And the, different, and the, the problem becomes when you really need that spirit, and then the spirit's not there for you. Or the parasite becomes very demanding. And a person finds themselves in an upside down relationship where they're just giving and giving and giving. And when they don't give, this, this, this parasite starts turning their life into uh, chaos. So it is not accessible to anybody or everybody. Uh, that's extremely sound advice, I think. Um, I, I assume you work with a pretty diverse group of spirits, given that the uh, diverse spiritual ecosystem is so vast, I mean, between Loa, between saints, angels, um, ancestors, how do you decide, or do you decide uh, who to work with when you're doing work for a client or for yourself? Well, um, that's actually a really interesting question. Uh, We have different types of divinations that we perform. Sometimes I'm just no, because the spirit tells me I'm interested. You know, I want to do this or a spirit stakes a claim at a client and says, I'm, I brought them to you. I want to work for them. Yeah. We also have divinations uh, either by tarot. We also look into people's palms, see what spirits they have because the spirits that they were born with are almost always going to be the best choice for them to help them with their dilemmas as those spirits are the most invested. You're getting blown up. I know. I don't know why I'm popular tonight. <laughs> I just don't get it. It's a Sunday night. Why? Why? <laughs> so, so going back a step, uh, you were talking about the spirits, um, the possession situation. How, how common is, is it for you to experience possession? How common is it generally to, to get possessed to work with the spirits and what are, how does that look? We spoke to a gentleman not too long ago who was involved in uh, shamanism and, and his possession experiences are, are pretty violent experiences. It's not like a calm meditative uh, session. So, so what does it look like for you and how common is that for you? Um, there are different levels of possession. They're not, pres- they're not, um, they were never named to me precisely, but there are different forms where there's the full possession where I'm not there and it's just a spirit. And there are times when I'm there, I am eyes are wide open. I'm aware of everything going on around me. Uh, But the spirit is more or less in control or say we're sharing a mind. I don't really want to go much deeper than that because I feel like it gets into very personal experiences, but possession is important in these types of practices because they uh, allow you to commune with the spirit. It's much like the idea of the Eucharist in in Catholicism. It is an actual communion with the spirit and the spirit uh, and the spirit interacts with part of your soul while it's inside of you. And that sounds pretty intimidating and it, it actually is, and it should be something taken with caution. 
As for violent possessions, I've never experienced a possession that was violent. I've had one that was out of control when I was, uh, before I was initiated, I had received uh, my warriors from a Babalao. And I, and a few weeks later, it was the new year and I was out drinking on the new year and suddenly I got possessed. And I was with people that didn't even know what was going on. And, and I didn't know what was going on. All I remember is we went to some Cuban bar down in, uh, down in Miami and they were playing, you know, songs and I heard that drum beat and I couldn't stop dancing. And then I was talking to people and doing all sorts of things. I have no idea, uh, what exactly happened. Um, now, when it comes to a violent possession, that can mean that there is a problem with the spirit, that the spirit wasn't properly received by the person, or it could be that it is a spirit that has ill intent for somebody. And I'm not saying that's the case with your last guest. I'm just saying in general, violent possessions means that someone is in need of training and that they need help. It's been sort of romanticized through Hollywood that possession should be like, ah, uh, you know, eyes roll back in the head. And I think that that imagery it is also plays a role in violent possessions occurring in people that on some part some wavelength of them, they believe that they need to go through this, or that the spirit needs to be violent on them. And because that's in their mind, when the spirit possesses them, that it makes the situation more violent. Well, and, it and would, it's very dangerous. Because, you know, go ahead. I was going to say, it would make sense that a, um, a trained practitioner would become more graceful in possession over time as the, as the, as the priest or priestess or votary um, attune themselves more to the spirits and develop the relationships. It becomes more seamless where the person's eyes just kind of like change a little bit. And all of a sudden you can see in the mannerisms of the person and even the facial gestures they make that you're talking to somebody that's, not that same person. It's a different person. Yeah. And I, I think you've witnessed stuff like that before, if I'm not mistaken, Janus, that you've had yeah. some, you've had some experiences with that. So you've seen different types of possessions take place and the, uh, the triggers for them can be different for everybody. Uh, sometimes the spirits just want to mount because they feel like their horse is in danger or they feel like their horse is being disrespected and they'll come down and they'll, they'll tell off the person that's disrespected their horse it's an interesting topic and I, there's a, there's a depth that I feel like I can only go so far before I'm getting into a territory where it's like, maybe saying certain things aren't so appropriate because I don't want to give too much information and have people out there trying things and hurting them. Sure. That's reasonable. Yeah. No, don't, don't feel any pressure to go too deep into anything. Uh, if you, if you don't feel comfortable, that's totally cool. Twitter will um, make a crumb and turn it into a doctrine. Of course. That is the nature of the internet itself. Truly. Well, what about, um, so I know in, in voodoo, there's a couple of things that um, are like a big deal, at least from what I understand, which is like Ile Ife and uh, also the waters, which is sometimes called the waters of return. And I was just wondering if you have any perspective on those things within the voodoo cult. Water and the waters of return, uh, spirits live in water. Uh, I talk about this on my blog, uh, sorcerer.blogspot.com. There's a little plug in there. Um, but I talk about water extensively in one particular article. Essentially water is 
the ultimate medium. We're made up of mostly water. Water falls from the heavens. It is life. The ocean, the, the planet is mostly water. Water grants clarity. It refreshes us. It used to be a gesture back in, and it probably still is in countries that still practice hospitality. At the very least, allow your guests to wash their hands, refresh themselves after getting off the road, have water to drink. And it is the very first gesture in communication, in in good communication. So as a practitioner, I incorporate water into just about everything that I do. When I salute my ancestors, when I pray, I put out glasses of water and I offer light as well. So the spirits can warm themselves at the light, take the energy from the candles and elevate themselves. And they can purify themselves and clean themselves in the water that I've offered to them. And some people that engage these practices will even notice that out of nowhere, the water will sometimes become dingy overnight because the spirits had to clean themselves or they had to clean the person that was praying before them. As for the waters of return, when you die, you go into the earth. Rain comes from the heavens, enters into the soil, mingles with you, goes into aquifers under the ground and eventually makes its way back to the ocean where we all reside eventually. Cool. Thank you. What can you say about Veve? How important is that? And what is that? I think that it's, it is important. The Veve is sort of like the signature of the spirit and the act of drawing a Veve literally opens a portal whereby that spirit can manifest. Um, There is, outside of the context of ceremony, there isn't really a reason to use veves, but it's become this symbol of, and there's a veve above my head right here. Um, It's a, there's a, it's become a symbol of voodoo are these exotic veves. It's, it's this, um, it's the, the notion that, oh, look, it's so different and foreign from what we have. There's no pictures of, you know, of saints, but instead they draw on the ground. And, and I think that's a little bit of uh, the, the emphasis of Veve or the overemphasis of Veve's um, have a lot to do with outsiders' perspectives of voodoo itself. It is not necessary to draw a Veve to call upon a Lua. It helps. You're just facilitating that, that manifestation even more. Um, and I also want to add here that once a veve is given light, it's active. So when people are out there buying candles with veves on them, they're actually playing a dangerous game. Because you burn that, you burn that pillar candle down with the veve on it, that veve came to life. You may not have felt anything. You may not have thought anything other than that's a pretty candle. But now that veve is alive, and what do you do with the glass candle? Throw it in the trash. So you've called upon a spirit, given life to the veve, and then you just throw it in the trash. Can't you see how something like that can become problematic? Or people get get it tattooed on them. It just becomes this very, it's like a ball of wax. And people get themselves into a lot of trouble messing around with veves. Um, they're very important in the ceremonial context, but for the average person, the lay person, 
it's something best left alone or to at least give very, very, very considerable thought before employing. Sure. To me, they're very reminiscent of like angelic seals. They are. Uh, is there any connection with the grimoires and the veves or are they totally separated? The, the veves have an origin in Congo practices. And we see that in Palo with the firmas, the again called signatures. And the veves are themselves like a language that the ungans and mambos use when they are calling upon the spirits. They are not just calling upon the spirits, but also giving a command or an instruction as well. Uh, and okay, and there's what is the? Oh, I'm sorry, Janice. Sorry, you should be. Um, when, the, <laughs> when the um, you know, I really liked what you had to say about the fact that there are consequences to doing certain things. We live in too much of there's too much of a message sent at the current time. The magic is this egalitarian, free for all, where anything goes and anyone can blow. But the fact is, it's not. Yeah. And people jump on things that they don't understand and then sometimes can destroy their lives or at least screw them up for a long time. They don't seem to understand this. And I'm glad that you spoke with the gravity that you did because the message needs to be get out needs to get out there that magic is not a game. That it is not. And I've seen a lot of people's lives get ruined by it. My life is included in that. I am one of those people that really messed up his life. And there are days when I wake up and go, God, why did I do that? Why was I so stubborn? Why did I feel entitled to that? I was not, I now I'm a very careful person. I take things into consideration before I do them. Even though I have all these spirits and I'm properly initiated as a priest, I don't just do whatever. That's wise. I mean, it seems like the trend nowadays, like, like Janice was saying is, you know, pushing this idea of magic and, and practice as something that everybody should do. Everybody should jump in, you know, throw caution to the wind and just go for it. Uh, it it's it, a fast way to mess up your life. You know, if you want to have drama in your life every day, sure, go do magic. Just go start, you know, using the spare method on on sigils, you know, just start doing whatever and uh, see what happens you know, the reality is, is life has consequences. And there is this generational idea that, that, you know, the consequences do not apply to me. Because things are so accessible. Now you can read any book that you want, you know, Amazon that changed the game in magic. Things that were you had to order through a book club, or maybe get a copy of through a friend and pay an exuberant amount of money. You could get on Amazon, order it right away, and it's at your house two days later. That's created a mentality that all of these things should be easily accessible. And therefore, it belongs to you in a sense, and you are entitled to this. Well, you are entitled to do whatever you want, but you're also entitled to receive the consequences of those actions. I said, that's the truth. You know, it's a simple fact. Look. Not only can not everybody do magic, because not, not all people have the gift to be able to do it. And even the, among the people who have a gift of magic, the gifts aren't distributed equally among all magicians. So different magicians have different skills. But even if you get beyond that, the fact is there needs to be sufficient education before a person even sort of dips their foot in the water. I mean, I'm all for experimentation to a certain degree. 
Um, but really you need to be trained under an elder. And I know that's something you wanted to talk a little about was a little bit about was the value of learning under um, a, a teacher in a tradition or an elder. So the definition that I was given of voodoo is speak to spirits. And we can apply that to hermetic ideas, the hermetic Kabbalah. I'm going to clarify that. This isn't, you know, kosher Kabbalah. This is the hermetic Kabbalah. And they, they put an emphasis on the ruach, the breath that is life and is also spirit. When you have an elder beyond the, beyond the knowledge that comes from their lineage, that's been passed down within their family or whatever they were initiated into. When you um, receive that knowledge from them, you're getting it from their mouth to your ear, from the spirit of their breath into your spirit. There are things that happen and a sort of tenure that is gained spiritually that grants you a little bit more wiggle room and a lot more, say the word juju, power to do things more effectively, whereby the spirits say, oh, this is so-and-so, disciple or son of so-and-so, who was the disciple or son of so-and-so, and and disciple or son of so-and-so, and so-and-so, and so-and-so, and and it goes all the way back to the beginning of the lineage, and through all those ancestors as well. All that grants protection, one, and it grants power, a lot of power. Um, When you don't have that, you are just adrift in a sea of information. Information is great, but it's just data without having the wisdom to apply it in the proper way. Another advantage to having an elder is you have that moral guidance and not morality, but moral, like someone that is there to raise you the right way. Someone that is going to challenge you, that is going to see those flaws that you have and do all the work to break you down so that you can be more effective, more powerful, so that you can fulfill your destiny. And by destiny, I'm not talking about a destination. I'm talking about a path that that is meant for you. And that path may have different branches that you can go off on, but it's still your path because that path is shaped just like you. And a good elder will make sure that you get on that path and help you to stay on that path until you can truly walk on your own. And without that, without that, that's okay. Without that, you're just someone using information that you found. There's no life behind it. There's no breath behind it because the spirit wasn't given to you. And that's the really important part from someone that is, I trained myself how to work to a person that, well, I, I went to the school of hard knocks and I got yelled at a whole bunch for several years. <laughs> you know, I was broken down. I was tempered. I made lots of mistakes and had someone to either help me get up or mock me until I learned better. And that sounds hard. You know, we're going back to this idea that people feel entitled 
And people feel so entitled because they can go on to Google, Google whatever information they have. They don't have to worry about if it's right or wrong because Google is always right. So errors get repeated and repeated and repeated. And even in the, even in, um, the Western tradition, the book club, or the lodge masons, you know, not all masons, but the lodges, the hermetic lodges, the OTO, the Golden Dawn, all the other ones that are the same. There are errors within there. All of these lineages are broken. When someone wasn't happy, what do they do? I'm going to go start my own lodge. And they break off and do that. The Crowley is a great example. He couldn't, he couldn't hack it working in a group, so he went and started his own. Declared himself Lord of the Eon. I'm the great beast 666. But the reality is, is he was just like a bull. He had no one to temper him, no one to train him. And look at his life. Look at how it turned out. People say, oh, everybody knows who Crowley is. Well, that was only because of Grady McMurtry who saw an opportunity and took it. Otherwise, he would be very obscure right now. He got lucky in that sense. But still, we have errors that are repeated over and over and over again. That's not to say I'm totally against books. There's great stuff out there. There are great authors out there that have done a lot of good scholarly research. That's great. It's interesting to know what people were doing back then in the 1500s, in the 1600s. You know, I guarantee you that every single one of those cunning men that was worth a damn learned from somebody else that somebody sat down and taught them and that the books we have are nothing more than their footnotes, things that they were told to write down so that they don't forget them. So having an elder, having a mentor is extremely important. You can figure it out for yourself, but you're going to have a very hard time. Thank you so much for that. I think that's a much needed message in today's occult world. I don't believe in an occult community. because true esotericism is is hermetic and that the point isn't to socialize the point is to work and you're not working if you're out there socializing in some group wearing some tacky steampunk steampunk larping bullshit no what you need to (laughs) you know what i mean like it's not about that it's about jumping in and doing the work and and when you're not doing the work starting to your eyes bleed and then applying the study back to the work. If you have a teacher, like you're fortunate enough to, you know, you go to your teacher, you talk to them about what you're going to do and then what you did and you get their feedback. And sometimes it might not be great. Sometimes it might be, but I do want to ask you, I feel like, especially with you, I, I feel like talk people should know more. It's weird. You learn about, you hear, you know, party voodoo, American voodoo people, they talk about voodoo this, they talk about voodoo that. But Dantor isn't talked about that much. And it's weird to me because, you know, they may show a picture of her or whatever, but they don't emphasize properly what a central role she has in voodoo. Dantor, Ursula Dantor, is the queen of the Petuo Lua, the hot spirits. She is their queen in voodoo. She is, she is the mistress of the Ungan. In some of her songs, they actually say, my mistress, my woman of chance, that is you, Ursula Dantor. 
she is very important and compassionate. And because of bad, bad documentation and bad writers, she is very misunderstood. So misunderstood that very few people ever seem to say anything about her. You hear Petro, you hear Hot, and you, you, people are aware of the spirits like Ogu, who is a fierce warrior who likes gunpowder and big fireballs and machetes. And that's her husband. But she is sweet, loving. She's with you at your high and she's with you at your low. When you're up in the heavens, she's there. When you're down in the mud, she is there. She is always there. She is very beautiful and compassionate and patient. That's a very good word for her, patient. She's waiting for you to do the right thing. And she won't always tell you when you've done wrong. She's very important. She played a very important role in the ceremony of Bois Cayman that I don't think is necessary to go into here. But she spiritually played a very integral role there. And she has continued that role with every Ungan and every Mambo. And you should, you, if you don't see her representation in a temple, then you might want to go to another temple. You might want to find another house because she is so necessary and so important. She is there for childbirth. She helps women to conceive. She protects women and she also protects men as well. And she accepts everybody. Everybody is accepted by Dantor. Your race, your sexuality, your personal creed, you are accepted. She loves you as you are until, you know, you do something to mess up, but that's something else entirely. But she is there ready to receive you when you go to her. Thank you very much for that. That was excellent. And um, I'm glad you went there because there needs to be more of her present um, in the representation. Because there's a lot of people, it seems like, that are interested in voodoo out of the blue nowadays. And I'm sure you see that a lot as a professional um, in the field. And I'm wondering what you think about a lot of these professional magicians and professional magic and all this stuff. There is a long, long history of professional magic, and especially with the the rise in awareness of cunning men in England. And um, we would have stregas in in Italy. Um, every every people had their own medicine. Now, I wish I would have said this earlier, but magic is actually medicine. It is not some masturbatory, transcendental thing for you to go off into the ethers so that you can become so enlightened and transcend everything. You can do that. That's not really what it's for. It's medicine. It's meant to correct imbalances in nature. You are making things right. You are working with the forces of nature to correct uh, disease and perversions. That is why you should be doing magic. If you are not doing magic to heal and you are just using it 
to try and attempt to transcend, you are missing the point entirely. As far as working, charging money, the fee is different for everybody. And you should be compensated what you feel your time is worth. Because it all comes from time. There's the time it took to learn. There is the school of hard knocks that I went through. There's the traveling that I did. I've met different masters. And I don't want to name any names because I don't want to, you know, have a kickback over it. But I've met different masters. I've met different people that were of all different faiths, of all different practices. And the ones that impressed me the most were the ones that could truly heal. Those are the ones with real power. People think of power and they're thinking of this power over, you know, where they can destroy their enemies when it's necessary. And it's like, yeah, sometimes you might need to destroy an enemy. That's true. The real power is in creating life. It's in saving life. It's when someone, it's when a client comes to you because they have a loved one that's on the brink of death and you go to the spirits and the spirits intervene and the person makes a full recovery. It's when someone has a strange sickness that no doctor can seem to diagnose or heal and they come to you and you correct it and their affliction is gone. The one thing that every human being has in, we all share, the one thing we all share as human beings is we all have afflictions. Magic should be the remedy for those afflictions. And that's where it's important that you are properly trained, that you have an elder, someone to teach you how to wield these powers the appropriate way, learn how to work the appropriate way, learn how to diagnose and correct affliction in others. Because if you're not doing that, you're just inflating your own ego. And there are lots and lots and lots of people that are doing that. And I can think of a few right now that I don't want to name but I really would love to <laughs> some very big egos out there. <laughs> Let's name them. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> you were about to, man. You were about to, I was about to, I was like, I'm going to say it. What do you think about this whole <laughs> world of like, you know, because there's a lot of like, you know, internet mega masters out there you know, Mega Max. And I was wondering, you know, the, the, the Mega Max Mega Masters, what do you think about them? The ones with the, you know, million dollar courses and this and that. I, I made a post the other day on my wall. I think that all those mail away online courses are silly. I'm not saying that there may not be good information in there and that someone may not learn something from there, but I think it's silly. Because going back to my earlier point about masters, mentorships, elders, if you're just doing a mail-away course, what do you get? A certificate at the end of it? Good job. You, you did it. Congratulations. Pat on the back. You know, here's my next course. Feel free to sign up. You know, and it does make people a lot of money. And I'm not going to shame anybody's game. You know, if I had a different outlook, I'd probably be making a lot of money because I have more than enough information where I could keep people busy for years. However, I think it's misleading into thinking that you got some information from an online course that's exclusive to you or the other people 
And that somehow makes it more powerful than something you could pick up in a book because it's really not. For some people, it helps them get started. It gives them a little extra motivation. But if you don't have the motivation to even try it on your own without a course, magic really isn't for you. And you actually just spent a whole bunch of money finding that out. That's why I try to put out as much free information as possible for people. I want you to try things. I'm not scared that I'm going to lose business because I told people how to do a love spell. I'm not, not worried about that. I want people to have hands-on experience to understand that I'm coming from a place of knowledge and experience. And maybe, maybe they don't come to me. Maybe they don't patronize me ever again. But maybe I just save them $1,000 on a course where they would have ended up with a certificate because they just needed to do one thing the right way. Who knows? Yeah. I mean, those, those, uh, <laughs> courses, I mean, they're genius. I mean, they, they are, that's, that's money magic right there. So speaking of money, why are there so many broke magicians out there? Part of the reason is because they're, they're actually doing something wrong. There's something in them, in their foundation that is warped. They could have a spirit that's making them poor that they're completely unaware of. Spirits will do things to get your attention. And you have all these guides and guardians, all these great spirits ready to help you. And yet you're sitting there conjuring a demon from a book because you read something on an article. So your, your own guardians will start to do things to get your attention. I think another reason why there are so many broke magicians goes all the way back to Crowley and those Victorian magicians that were so high and mighty. People that never had to deal with poverty, people that never had to deal with putting food on the plate. They didn't, you know, they, these were all essentially trust fund kids living the high life. They had the time, they had all day to sit there and explore the astral realms and get to know all these spirits and claim my authority over the world. The reality is, is they were just playing with their own head the whole time. They had perfect security in all of their lives. If you're coming to magic and you're not there to correct what's wrong in your life, you're just going to make everything worse. One of the first things a person should have a grip on is their money. Your first year should be focusing on getting your money together so that you can have a lifestyle that will allow you to practice and to learn. There is no virtue in poverty. How is there a virtue if you can't help yourself? If you can't help yourself, how can you help others? If, if you're not doing magic to help others, why are you doing it? Do you even know what you're doing or why? I also think that it's a sense of entitlement that causes people to be poor as magicians. The universe will deliver whatever I need whenever I need it. And maybe that happens. Maybe you get that big break and you get $1,500 off a scratch-off ticket. And right after you cash that ticket, your rear axle goes on your car. And you think to yourself, "Woo! thank God I had that money. But just imagine if you had better luck because you corrected your spiritual problems. You'd have an extra 1500 bucks sitting in the bank. Or maybe you decide, hey, I'm going to go put a down payment on that boat. And it does take lifestyle changes too. You can't, I mean, you have to help the magic help you as well. 
like with love magic. If you're never leaving the house, but yet you're doing magic to to find your true love, I mean, that's that's a tall order. There are and believe you know, it's so funny because there are so many people. That's how they believe magic's going to happen. Like I want this. I want it. They're they're like a three ten at best. They want a ten ten girlfriend. They don't want to work. They don't want to work out, so they're flabby. Um, they don't want to get a haircut. They look like a mess. And worst of all, they don't want to leave the house. And they think the spirits are going to have that ten ten bombshell come knocking on their door because I did the ceremony. The spirits said they're going to find it for me. Meanwhile, there's plenty of women that are still out of their league that they're walking by every day that have a genuine interest in them. Again, it's, it's ego. It's the, the sense of entitlement. It all just keeps coming back around to people being entitled and believing that the world should be delivered to them because everything else can be. You can get your groceries delivered now. You don't ever have to leave the house. Why can't the spirits bring the person directly to me? Right, right, right. So we touched on this earlier. So being that not everyone is going to have access to a mentor or a traditional system to be initiated into, but they may still have the real calling. Um, what do you what do you prescribe for them, or what advice do you give people with you know starting to work with spirits or starting to get into this where they don't have that that mentor? Get a small table covered in a white cloth, or you can put down a white tile. I personally like to use a white tile because the tile is flame proof. Should a candle tip over, you're less likely to have a disaster. And be, sit down there with a glass of water and a candle, a white candle, and pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for your ancestors. Pray for guidance to your gui- from your guides and guardians. Ask them to bring you a mentor, a true teacher, to give you guidance, to direct you to that. And I guarantee that if you do it and that you are earnest, the way will open for you. It may not happen overnight. It may take a couple of years. But eventually, the way will open to you. As long as you aren't pig-headed and bullheaded like I am. It should happen in a reasonable amount of time. It takes dedication. You have to earn it. You have, and the only way to earn it is by being earnest. You have to show them. You have to show up. You have to put in the time. And it doesn't take a lot of time, 10 to 20 minutes a day. It's not a lot to ask. And if that teacher never shows up, then maybe it's not for you. And maybe you should be putting your energy into other aspects of your life. And the teacher may not be, it may not be Gandalf that shows up at your front door. You know, you have, you have to maybe put away some preconceived notions of what that teacher is going to be like. I certainly had to do that. I thought that I was going to have some hermetic master come down and, and teach me and elevate me to my proper place in the world. And instead I, I had Gene and I couldn't be happier that I had someone like Gene because Gene has forced me to keep it real. It's really important that you learn who you are. And the only way you do that is through earnest practice and having, having someone challenge you so that you can become your true self. Look, in, in, a, 
in America especially, many of us come from broken families. Divorce rates are high. There are a lot of people growing up without having both parental roles in their lives. And I grew up not having, I have a father. and I won't go too deep into that, but he wasn't fulfilling the, the role that a father should have fulfilled. And that was a detriment to me. And when I found Gene, and when Gene officially became my spiritual father, I had that void in my life fulfilled. And it wasn't easy. I had all these bad habits. I had to become a man really fast, and I was already in my 30s. And I realized that I'd never been living my life as a man. And that, uh, that's, that's part of giving up that preconceived notion. A teacher isn't going to sit there and stroke your ego. And if they are, then you need to get rid of them. You need to find someone that's going to challenge you, make things difficult. So that's the only way you're going to learn. So Rocky, one thing that we, we wanted to talk about prior to the actual recording here was uh, healing mental illness and trauma. So we'd love to hear what you have to say about that. Yeah. Um, we're going to go back to my origin story because there was a de- there were details about myself that okay. I left out. While I was having all of these spiritual experiences, uh, growing up, you know, as a magician, I began to have symptoms of something that was like bipolar disorder or even schizophrenia. There were many, many people that were close to me that asked me if I'd gone crazy. This was a common question that I was asked. I would have impulses that I couldn't control. I'd hear rushing thoughts going through my head constantly. It got to the point where that was just normal. And I didn't know what not normal was. I thought maybe I'd been like this my whole life. And then I was beginning to question if I was sane or not. When I got initiated, the rushing voices that I was hearing all the time, the impulses, they all stopped. The mental silence that is the goal of meditation, I'd experienced it for the first time in my life. True silence, true peace. The mind was like a still lake all the time. I could see where thoughts were coming from. I, could, I knew who I was. And I began to realize that all those thoughts, all those voices that were plaguing me, the impulses were all influences of the spirits. In voodoo, the soul, and this is true for a lot of different religions, the soul is placed on the top of the head. It sits on your head. Because of that, if there is damage to the head, or it is invaded, or trauma has occurred, it can manifest as mental illness. Now, there are certain mental illnesses that people are born with. They have a defect that they're going to always have to live with. But the role that we have in voodoo is that we can help them to heal, help them to cope. I'm not saying it can cure all mental illness. That's not what I'm saying at all. But having a knowledgeable healer can 
make life a lot easier for many people. And I really want to emphasize this. It just feels really important right now. And when I saw that this was something you wanted to talk about, I got very excited because I suffered for so long with perceived mental illness. I destroyed friendships. I would be in a successful job and then just destroy it one day because I couldn't control my impulses. And that through initiation, through voodoo, I was able to gain control over myself. I'm not saying that I'm perfect, that I'm mentally perfect. I have days where I feel depression. I feel anxious, but I have coping mechanisms that I was able to gain. And mind you, I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with mental health, mental health care. But unfortunately, in this country, there's not enough of it to help everybody. And that only people with money or good insurance will be able to have access to the health care that they need. And I think that traditions like voodoo, performed by competent priests and priestesses, will be able to will allow for people to cope with their mental illness in ways that they may not have been able to before. The first time I had my head washed was by a babalao. And for about a month, I had mental peace. The voices didn't stop, but the anxiety and the impulses did. And I experienced peace and clarity for a month. When I was finally initiated and had my head washed in voodoo, that was when I experienced true peace and true clarity and a true sense of self for the first time in my life at the age of 31. That's, that's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. It does seem like there is a, or there can be a fine line between true schizophrenia and working in spiritual systems how would you advise people to navigate that? Because I've, uh, you see quite a few people that just kind of go off the rails into la la land and they think that they are, you know, communing with spirits and whatnot. And maybe they're not, (laughs) you know, that's, that's a really slippery slope to go down because I feel like I'm getting into the realm of diagnosing people or giving out medical advice. Um, But what I've noticed is that a lot of people that seem to truly be suffering from a mental illness and they're using uh, the spiritual world to somewhat create a map for themselves to deal with it, they they tend to create this or have this notion of a divine conflict taking place. This ultimate battle between good versus evil is taking place in their minds. And And they are a key player or a decisive player in that battle. When the reality is there is no spiritual warfare. There aren't, there's no war taking place in heaven. These are all just aspects of nature. The sky isn't at war with the ocean. They are just interacting with each other. So if you think that St. Michael needs you to help battle the devil, you might have a mental illness. I'm not saying that isn't treatable that you can't learn how to cope, that these types of traditions can't help you, but that you're going to have a difficult road ahead of you. Um, I told you I traveled and 
met a lot of people that I considered magi. And one said to me that people that are truly bipolar or truly schizophrenic should not be deeply involved in spiritualities, most spiritualities, as they are going to suffer tremendously. And that was his take on it. I don't necessarily agree. Um, but I think if you have a good priest, a good mambo that can help you quote, uh, cope, and by priest, I'm even including Catholic priests, especially ones that have been trained in mental illness. There are many of them. And Orthodox priests as well. Someone that is compassionate and has empathy that can help a person navigate the, the workings of their minds. Speaking of mental illness, Janice, did you have something? (laughs) (laughs) Um, No, but it's a really good point you made about the mental illness thing, especially with the hearing voices and things like that. And the fact is that, I mean, we're exposed to things in the outside world that often have intelligences or spirits or forms of consciousness attached to them especially now that the world is connected through this internet, which has evolved to this point. Um, It's really easy. I've found, you know, magic works through sympathy and association. And so the internet is actually a a prime way to, for people to be exposed to all kinds of other spiritual influences than they might not have been exposed to before that. And the possibility for those influences to attach to somebody inexperienced but sensitive is that's a possibility it's a distinct possibility and so i think that for people to know that they're uh, experienced practitioners who can help them make sense of their experience and also that they may not actually be crazy but instead suffering from a case of obsession or partial possession that could give people hope and people should have hope you they absolutely should and they should seek out help there's no virtue in suffering you know you, you gain nothing by suffering uh, there is virtue in humbling yourself and asking for help. Just sitting there bleeding out slowly rather than turning to, so, turning to a friend and saying, hey, can you help me? You know, you, you have, people have more control over their lives than they want to admit to themselves. And when it comes to your mental health, uh, when it comes to your overall spiritual health, you need help. You, you know, everybody needs help. We aren't islands. We are meant to interact with one another. You know, even though there is strong American individualism in this country, we'll only make it through working together and coming together um, through our commonality, which is affliction. I'm glad I got to bring that back together. <laughs> yeah, full circle. Nice job. And and the thing is, I mean, that also extends to priests and magicians. You know, like we. Those of us, those those people who are priests and magicians interact with the invisible world in varying degrees, interact with many people on a regular basis. And so part of being a genuine priest or a genuine magician or medicine man or woman, um, it involves exposure to a, a f- frequent exposure to a wide variety of influences and forces, not only that you're connected to, but that the people you come into contact with or connected to. And then that's also in addition to those people. So people who are magicians and, you know, technicians of the sacred, you could say, don't, you can't be afraid. You can't be ashamed. You can't be, 
you can't feel bad about also maybe needing some help yourself from time to time. Absolutely. I still go to my, I still go to Gene when I have things that I don't understand because how else am I going to learn unless I ask for help? Um, it's not very common <laughs> at this point, but I still have a lot to learn because I can't learn. I, I don't, I wasn't born with knowledge. None of us were born with knowledge. We had, somebody has to teach us at some point. Um, and that's really important for people to remember. You weren't born a master and you don't become a master on your own. You have no one to validate you as a master, only yourself. Where is the, where is the, what standard do you hold yourself up to? You know, are you going to claim you're the next Crowley after you successfully had a spirit manifest for you? Or you cast that first money spell. Now you're a real magician because you got an extra 30 bucks that you weren't expecting. You know, it's a, it's a process. And it's, it's much like uh, being in, truly involved in a martial art where you, have a, where you have a teacher to discipline you, to harden you, to recognize your achievements, to let you know that you've achieved something. And that is the only, the only way that the occult occulture will grow is by people working together and seeking help from one another or from competent people, competent priests. And I'm not saying me, I can't possibly help everybody. I'm one person, but there are other people out there that want to help that can help that you should seek out. And one more thing, cause I touched on Catholicism before. Um, traditional Christianity is a great place to put yourself as a magician. It is a very well-defined religion that I think if you have the ability to get involved, to commune with that religion from a pure heart, from a good standpoint, not just because it's another cog in your, your, your paradigm, another cog in the machine for your paradigm. But having the safety net of religion as a magician is so very important. Faith, being able to fall back on faith and the faith of knowing, because if anyone's going to know the truth, the magician will be the one to know it. Finding that ancient religion that the majority, if you're a Westerner, the majority of your ancestors for at least a thousand years or more were most likely Christian, if not Jewish, or, you know, some will be Muslim. You know, we're talking about the Middle East. When you have that true faith, you have that understanding, you're able to connect with clergy and they don't need to know that you're a magician, but you have someone to express yourself to, express your faith, express your experiences with other people, that is also equally valid if you don't have access to someone like me. Great points. Very wise words. And I mean, people, especially people that have been baptized, you've been initiated. Yes. Yeah. That is an initiation. The, the, the Christian baptism is an initiation. It's very valid. And people don't seem to realize that. And there's also a layer of spiritual protection that comes with that. And if you are practicing traditional Christianity, communing with God through the Eucharist, you have so much growing inside of you. You have so much potential within you when you practice it properly. 
I want to say thank you so much for that because that's an excellent point. Um, on that note, I'm going to have to get out of here, but I wanted to personally thank you for agreeing to come on and have a fantastic conversation with us. And, uh, you know, wish you all the best. Yeah, we're, gr- we're grateful for you being on. And I think we'd like to have you on in the future again when we do our uh, second rounds with people, which, you know, uh, I think it'd be very nice. So uh, I'm going to hop out here, but thank you so much. And it was much appreciated. It was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me. Likewise. Uh, thanks. Thanks, Janus. I had a lot of fun. Thank you very much, Rocky. Dom, it's been great. All right. That was uh, Rocky Geis. And the interview is now concluded. We are very pleased to have had him as a guest on the podcast. As our listeners should be aware of by this point, we try to strike a balance between academic scholars who are sort of masters of their own discipline and practitioners, preferably master practitioners, who can give people an insight into what the life is like, what living uh, a tradition is. And there is certainly overlap as well, as we saw in our last interview, where there are some scholars who are practitioners and there are some practitioners who are some who are scholars. And given the depth and breadth of uh, Rocky's knowledge, I think that he would probably fall into sort of a blend uh, with practitioner being first and maybe scholar second. But he has an exhaustive, exhaustive almost encyclopedic knowledge of uh, voodoo and Congo spiritualism and magic. And uh, he's also an excellent tarot reader and has studied the tarot as seriously as I have. And we've had many good conversations privately about that. So I also recommend him as a reader. Uh, I am certain you will not be disappointed. Dom? Yeah, I had a lot of fun during this conversation. I found Rocky to express himself very well. Um, I was impressed by his knowledge base. And uh, he was very candid with his personal stories, which which was nice and refreshing. Um, and it really kind of drives home his points. He's not speaking from this distant place about um, lofty ideas. This is stuff that he's lived through and gone through. And he made it very clear that a lot of these trials and tribulations were very difficult. And uh, I appreciate his honesty. And I think it's important to be honest. And life with the spirits can be like that. When you really are interacting with gods, spirits, and other kinds of beings, uh, your life will be transformed. Uh, There are changes that come, people come in and out, uh, shifts in perception, visionary insights, Uh, and all kinds of other transformations. Magic is real. Spiritual path is real. And our aim with this show is to try and give an insight and a perception on what what that's like. And I think that Rocky does a good job with that. What he described is real life, not so much hardy version of these things. Uh, Esotericism is not meant to be done from the armchair, although there is nothing wrong with studying it uh, for pleasure. But to really live the realities that are spoken of, and we're, whether we're speaking about patient voodoo or Rosicrucian esotericism or Neoplatonic theurgy 
or spiritualism or um, hermeticism or any other forms of magic and mysticism and spirituality that are alternate from the conventional, it's important to understand that there's a reality beneath all of this. It's not as um, an exoteric conventional religion uh, based on quote-unquote beliefs. You can throw your beliefs out the window. The only reason, in fact, to learn something uh, prior to experience is to give oneself the proper context and understanding. You know, uh, a map is useful because it does help you to orient yourself. But we cannot confuse the map for the territory. And that's why it's so important for us to feature professionals on the show as well. People who live it, who breathe it, and whose job it is. And for Rocky, it's a full-time job. Yeah, and I appreciate his um, honesty and perspective on not wanting to shame anyone's game. I thought that was a valuable thing as well because there are professional magicians that are totally legitimate and it's not a bad thing to be a professional in that way. We walk a fine line here trying to discern the true and the false because there are so many snake oil salesmen out there so I think maybe we come across as harsh sometimes um, on the broader esoteric landscape and community, but I think it's important in this age of kind of unlimited access to information that you are critically thinking about who's legitimate and who's not and why, and um, we aren't always right here on this show, and we reserve the right to be wrong but we are trying to provide the most critical perspective and analysis that we can on, on this landscape, which can be a tricky one to navigate. And in the same way that we try to balance the scholars that we have on the show with the legitimate practitioners, our, our delivery and our perspective falls somewhere in between as well. Um, we don't want to become too academic and make this show dry. There are some very good podcasts out there that are deep, deep divers into the academic side of esotericism, but I think all of us could agree that they can at times be dry. On the other side of things, there are a thousand podcasts springing up, like the Lernian Hydra, um, filled with pseudo-practitioners and green-eared hosts that do not possess adequate discernment. So it's important to walk that line. And, you know, Mercury rules both legitimate magicians, but he also rules over ledger domain. And this is something with that should be considered. Um, you know, the trickster, the false prophet, and the prophet are both under the umbrella of Mercury's children. And sometimes... You may find both in the personality of a magician. This is something that needs to be considered. Uh, this is why you have to retain your own critical faculties, be able to look at things with discernment, do not get caught up in cults of personality. In fact, the very idea of an esoteric quote-unquote community is somewhat fallacious. If, if there is one, it should be secondary to the inward experience of a practitioner. Uh, most of these things we do privately in the sanctity of our own homes, chapels, temples, oratories. This is work that is deeply personal. It's not meant to be 
prostituted in the public space and spilled out all, all over everyone's tables for everyone to eat from. It's not the way it works. Jesus said not to cast our pearls before swine. We should pay close attention to this injunction and follow it assiduously. Well said. Uh, back to Rocky, I want to make sure we plug his stuff that he's got. Um, you can find him on Voodoo Sorcerer, and that's spelled V-O-D-O-U, VoodooSorcerer.com. And there you can find his blog, which is very informative, as well as all his services that he provides, which, um, among other things, he does love magic. He does court case magic, money magic, healing. Um, as you mentioned, he's a tarot reader, so he does tarot readings as well, and I believe palm readings. On top of that, you can find his wares at Voodoo Sorcerer on Etsy, where he's got powders, oils, and waters, uh, among other things. And you can also find him on his Facebook group, Ancestors, Saints, Tarot, and Conjure. And it's a pretty high caliber group as far as Facebook goes, in my opinion. So uh, if you're interested in these topics and what Rocky does, I would, I would check that out. Yeah, and the thing with Rocky is he's a giver. So when you hire him for something or consult him for divination, you're getting a person who's throwing themselves 150% into what they do. I can speak firsthand from this. I have actually known him for years, and he gives more than all of himself to what he does. He has a really deep passion for it, really deep knowledge, and a lot of personal practical experience that makes him an effective magician. He gets the job done. No frills, but he's not going to lie to you and tell you sweet, pretty lies in order to make you happy and then not deliver on actual results. He's probably going to tell you the truth to your face without dressing it up. And he, on the other hand, he's going to deliver hard, fast, clear, strong results. That's the kind of magician I respect. Okay, I think we are moving on now to the uh, book review segment. So the book that I chose this week is, I think, an important one. It's the Chaldean Oracles Text Translation and Commentary by, I might butcher this name, but Ruth Majersik through Prometheus Trust Publications. Um, first of all, it can be on the pricey side. Um, right now on Amazon, it's around $100. Brill, of course, has it for $90 as a PDF. I don't know how they get away with that, but... Um, I was checking when I was on the market for this book, I was checking eBay regularly. And so uh, I was able to find it for $20 brand new. So I would check eBay. Occasionally you can find an Amazon for cheaper as well. That almost makes me want to cry. $20. That's insane. I wish I would have seen that. Oh, I know. I was shocked. I, I snatched it right up, but I've seen it on eBay for 30, 40, $50 as well, which I would have happily paid any of those prices for this book. It's definitely worth it. The book, I think, is invaluable for anyone interested in Middle Platonism, Neoplatonism, and what John, John Dillon calls the Platonic Underworld, which, in addition to the oracles, consists of uh, Gnosticism and Hermeticism. They all kind of drink from that same Middle Platonic uh, bubbling spring. Um, as the uh, listeners may know, the oracles had a major influence on the theology, philosophy, and theurgy of of the later Platonists, such as Iamblichus, Damascius, Proclus, um, and by extension, you could say the Christian mystics, such as Pseudo-Dionysus, who himself drew heavily from those Neoplatonists, especially Proclus. 
Um, the oracles are obviously very influential, mystical, and they are an intriguing belief system. Of course, only available in fragments, unfortunately. Uh, the author provides an excellent and thorough breakdown of the philosophy and theology found in the oracles based on what's available. I'd say probably the most comprehensive review of the work to date. Her introduction alone is, I believe, in my opinion, required reading for anyone who's interested in this subject matter. Um, the annotations, like we were saying a little earlier, since it is a scholarly work, the annotations and commentary are, while especially well-researched, they can come across as extremely dry and academic. Um, but to be fair, this is a scholarly work, which was meant for a very niche audience. So um, that's okay. And I'm, I'm a fan of academic work myself, so it wasn't a problem for me. Um, I think this work should be especially interesting to those who are interested in expanding their knowledge in the figure of Hakate, who in modern times is most often depicted as a necromantic goddess of witchcraft and cemeteries. I mean, just go on YouTube and you'll, you'll see plenty of that, um, which is fine. It's the chthonic piece of her triple form, but... Uh, the oracles provide a more expanded, cosmic, and I think important perspective on the nature of Hakate as a world soul and as a median between the highest god and the demiurgic creator. So rather than a marginal character in a huge roster of gods and goddesses, in the oracles, she is the power of strength, which is visible all around. Uh, in conclusion, I would highly recommend this book be a part of any esotericist's library, if not just for its highly influential place in the history of esotericism. For me, this book is one of three that I personally use for contemplative work, the others being the Gospel of Thomas and the Fragments of Heraclitus. Um, each one of these works provides short bursts of inspirational, mystical, and sometimes paradoxical concepts, which... I think you can chew on and attempt to digest over a lifetime. So again, highly recommend this work and I would recommend you check it out. And that is the Chaldean Oracles by Ruth Majersik. Thanks. That was an excellent review. I have to second the importance of this book. You know, I really think also reading this book alongside, um, Dylan's translation of De Mysterious and, um, of course, Shaw's Neoplatonism and the Soul uh, really bears a lot of fruit. Uh, it's it, you know Shaw's work will really help you to understand the oracles very well. And reading them in tandem with the Iamblichus, who is really from uh, kind of the area that the oracles originated in, it's really helpful. I think uh, just as a closing thought on the point of the book. You know, that area, um, Syria, Bulgaria, Armenia, Anatolia, is hugely important, hugely important uh, regarding some of our favorite foci on this show. Um, you know, there's so much there. I mean, we've heard several scholars refer to that area of the world. Whether we, And this is whether we were talking about the, the Virgin Mary or Ecate or uh, just, uh, you know, uh, Neoplatonic theurgy. It's something really special happened there. And if you consider that it may be one of the birthplaces of human humanity as we know it, at least in this cycle, you know, it just it's a lot of food for thought and study there. 
for some reason, Anatolia, Turkey, that area, those areas that you mentioned, Syria, that definitely do not get enough attention uh, for some reason. Um, but yeah, hugely important. Yeah, truly. All right. Well, I think that's a wrap. It is a wrap. So find us on Facebook, YouTube, and everywhere that you find podcasts. And you can find Janice on Pornhub. Just type in his name there. And that'll <laughs> yep. be it for today. <laughs> you got to cut that out. <laughs> and any wise words before we go, Janice? There's one small thing I wanted to mention. And that's that what we see in America as voodoo, uh, I often call it party voodoo. Because, it, you know, what you see is people having big parties in um, Perry styles, which are essentially voodoo temples, um, you know, with large amounts of people doing big dances with huge banquets. And that, I mean, that's legitimate. It's, it's, it's fun. It's beautiful, but it doesn't really represent voodoo as practice in the majority of Haiti, uh, as well as on the outskirts of Cuba, Cuba and the Dominican Republic. Uh, voodoo in much of Haiti is actually far closer to what Rocky practices which is a form of a deep, intense, mystical, spiritualistic magic. Uh, there's, there aren't these huge parties. It's more of a, uh, it's more magic focused, more spiritism focused, less, less party focused. This uh, westernized form of voodoo you see in the Americas a lot uh, originated in Port-au-Prince, uh, and it was in actually response to the tourist trade so what rocky does and what his teacher gene kent uh do is a more you could say a more traditional old school form of voodoo and um you know this is this is something uh worth considering because i think a lot of people in the west have a picture of voodoo that is not entirely accurate Okay, valuable addition there at the end. Thanks. And that's a wrap. Mm-hmm.